0: It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. And go with me. Welcome to the Dudes and Doxology podcast, everybody. House. I didn't know if we were going to the bridge or not. It's um, mm. glad. To, it's great to be with you. I'm glad to be with you, Hunter, to my right. How are you, Hunter?
1: good as someone who did not grow up in 90s christian culture what a time these songs to be alive. are they are extraordinary for both their theological mm. depth and for their insight into the heart of the father you
0: know what i think god does have a there's enough space in heaven where we could play football you know what i'm saying that is true kyle how are you great
2: i don't know anything <laughs> else i don't, I don't, else you know, I don't share? know i don't know big house as well as i thought Cl- time. clearly
0: not there's a there's a playlist on spotify it's called 90s christian remix and you can listen wow. to that and uh it'll blow your mind hey everyone how's it going welcome to the dudes and doxology podcast hey um god is
1: a Kirk cousins fan
0: <laughs> i think Kirk cousins is a God's is a god's fan oh he is yeah you know what i'm saying yeah speaking of football man i'm about to go one and four in fantasy and it is not going well for me
1: and uh yeah it's not great I'm True. about
2: to get destroyed this week by Kevin David. Shout out for Kevin there. Shout out I, to Kevin.
1: I, I have to say I, I'm playing um Chris Weber this week and The Godfather. Yes. And for the first time ever since doing this league, I did not start DJ Moore, who put up forty nine points. It's,
0: yeah. <laughs> when Yeah, when you wake up and realize you're playing Justin Fields and DJ Moore and they put up like 70 combined points between the two of them. Anyways, for those of <laughs> you who aren't fantasy football fans, we will stop talking about fantasy football. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to this episode of the Dudes in Doxology podcast. If you haven't done so already, it would be a huge help to us if you left a, f- a five-star review or four-star or three-star review or if you're just that type of person and you hate everything we've said two or one star and leave a review for us we love to read those and uh you know once we get a couple of those couple of those in we will share them uh here on the podcast if they're worthy of sharing so uh, leave us a review. Give us um, five stars. We would love that. And it just helps people find us. And um, yeah, it's just good to get good ratings and also just good, get good feedback from you guys. Oh, so we're going to dive into this episode's devotional. It is from my personal devotions, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. And I'm just going to read at the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Verse 27, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I think it's a good reminder for us to a couple things. Number one, run the race well. Paul uses several uh, sports or athletic metaphors, running the race, receiving the prize, boxing, these different things. But in verses 22 and 23, he talks about how he is becoming or doing his best to become all things for all people for the sake of the gospel. For the sake that he might save some and he does it for the gospel that he might share with them in its blessings and let that be an encouragement and challenge to us as we are do our best to become all things to all people to have connections, build relationships, have fellowship and have the opportunity to talk about Jesus with them. And let us not run aimlessly as verse 26 says, you know, boxing is just one beating Mm -hmm. the air, but let us run with control with discipline, because we will will receive an imperishable wreath, a reward that will never fade in heaven one day
1: yeah that's that was that's a good word. It reminds me of a story that uh Wendy Highsmith told me uh this morning about somebody she met who really got into homeless ministry to the point where he decided to be homeless for the sake of reaching the homeless population that's That's a level of dedication that I can say for certain that I do not have. I could not give up the comforts of having a home, having a place to rest my own head. And at least not at this point in my life. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, it is the part three of our conversation called Protestantism versus Catholicism. Uh, Thanks for joining us for uh, all three of these. I hope it's been a joy to you and a blessing and an encouragement. And maybe you've learned something um ironically we've gotten a lot i know i personally guys have gotten a lot of good feedback even this morning at church someone was talking with me about how much they really enjoyed uh protestantism versus catholicism part two just the previous episode uh there's been some online comments uh that haven't been so great uh, uh about uh about our stuff but hey thanks for listening appreciate that uh good or bad thanks for listening and uh, yeah, so we're just diving into this conversation. Just to give you a brief overview, if this
2: is your, I just I just wanted to say something about the feedback, right? Not going to name anything specific. I saw the look on your face there. Do it. Good feedback, right? It's very encouraging. Tells us that you know we're on a good we're on a good uh, trajectory with it. But bad feedback, criticism is also good because it it forces us to check ourselves and. Really look at things again so we appreciate all feedback
1: as a wise man once said check yourself before you wreck yourself
2: who was that wise man
1: i Thank actually you. don't know michael scott michael scott okay. all
0: right we've talked about where catholicism came from we've talked about the differences between christianity and catholics when it comes to salvation baptism praying to the saints idol worship life after death penance slash confessing sins to a priest and then right now, Hunter is going to kick us off with the differences between priests or how we view priests, what are priests when it comes to Catholicism, uh, and then biblical, evangelical, gospel centered Orthodox Christianity. Before Hunter uh, dives us into, and Lord willing, we will finish this conversation. I don't think there should be a part four. I actually taught um, this content in our student ministry, um, student ministry here at Ankeny Free Church. Uh, this past Wednesday, we actually just finished a series called "No Apologies," and it's a it was a five week series. I've done this series before, and man, students, it's red meat to them. They ate it up; they loved it. We talked about um, five different um, you know religions or faith systems. Uh, Or even worldviews. So first one was atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism. Week two was Jehovah's Witnesses. Week three was Mormonism. Week four was Islam. And then week five, the last week, was Roman Catholicism. And, um, I mean, we had students having conversations about these things that I didn't know these students were capable about having, you know, these types of conversations. Like our students, right? Like they were... Um, insightful and um, intuitive and um, like even in, so I lead a seventh and eighth grade boys community group and the the sort of thoughts and questions and you know things that stuck out to them were very encouraging and it, it's a reminder to me that our students don't need a cotton candy Jesus loves you really really basic um, Sunday school lesson that our students, if they can handle algebra one and trigonometry, they can handle in-depth theological doctrinally rich conversations and even complicated topics like apologetics. Um, it's, that was just really refreshing for me. So, uh, Hunter, without further, further ado, talk to us about,
1: the Catholic's view of priest, and then what uh, we as Christians view priest as. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, J.D. So Christians believe that Christ is the great high priest. We see this in Hebrews 4.14, and that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament that's established in Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is one that is supposed to be a shadow of Christ. It is not an office that continues into the new church. In fact, the office of priest is something that's been replaced by the office of presbyter or elder so we have elders now who act as the most similar thing to a priest in the Old Testament, but Christians reject the idea that there is a priesthood other than the priesthood of all believers that we teach, which the priesthood of all believers, that all people have access to God equally. Hebrews 10:19 through20 says, "Therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, that is, through his flesh." This is why we all have access equally. We have it through Christ alone. We don't have it because we've been ordained a certain way or that somebody's put their hands on us and told us that we have this. Catholicism on the other hand sees the priest is the a holy order of the church that upholds the legitimacy of the the church. So they trace the, they allegedly trace the uh, priesthood back to the apostles. They say that all their Priests have been ordained from people, and they can trace this back to Peter and the first, uh, the first disciples. Uh, in the Catholic Catechism, it says, only priests who have received the faculty of absolving sins from the authority of the church can forgive sins in the name of Christ. This is contrary to what we believe as evangelicals and contrary to what Scripture teaches. A lot, A lot of that. the, <clears throat> there's some similarities
2: between how Uh, Roman Catholicism views the priesthood and the way that they view saints. Hmm. Um, You know, in the Bible, uh, all all Christians are referred to as saints, even the the members of the Corinthian church, who Paul, you know, wrote two letters to about their sins. He calls them saints. And it's a similar thing with the priesthood. Um, The Bible refers to all Christians as priests. Jesus is the high priest. And so having a special set of Christians who are saints or priests set apart from the rest of the, of Christians is just, just Pat. I mean, just plainly unbiblical.
1: Thoughts, JD. Yeah.
2: Hebrews 4,
0: 14, you referenced it. I just want to quote it since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I told our students on Wednesday night, I'm glad that i don't have to be their priest (laughs) because i fail all the time daily several times every hour i'm thankful that i am not responsible for making intercessions um to the lord on their behalf um for several reasons one of the chief ones is i'm glad i don't have to hear all their little dirty secrets by sitting in a dark box and you know barely being able to see who it is and uh you know, saying I forgive them of their sins or that God forgives them. I mean, I just, I'm just glad we don't have to go through those hoops. I'm glad we can go straight to the source and the words of Michael Scott. We can cut out the middleman and we can go straight to Christ, our great high priest and our great mediator. Wow, Michael Scott said that. Well, the quote ended before I said the last stuff. <laughs>
2: you know, <laughs> he said cut out the middleman. You, you, you would probably, they'd probably be all you do 24-7 yeah. would be, you know, sitting in that confession booth listening to these kids If these kids that you have in youth group are anything like I was in middle school, (laughs) high school.
1: 14 to 18-year-old boys are disgusting, and the confessions you would hear would absolutely make you need to, like, take a shower every hour. So I need to wash my eyes. I think
2: if that were something I had to do, I would have to immediately – the moment I walk out the doors, I would have to go back to the confession booth. Amen. Like, no joke. Like, some some days back in the day, that – Anyway, no more about that. Kyle, talk to us about uh, how Catholics view the Bible. Oh, my. Oh. What do they say is about this the a, Bible? This might be a doozy. All right, J.D., this, these notes here that we have, it says there are significant differences. And I know that significant is a pretty strong word, <laughs> but I think that is even too small of a word to describe the differences There's a cornucopia of differences. There you go. I like that one. There's a cornucopia of differences in the way that Christians and Catholics see the Bible, both in the actual contents of Scripture and the authority of the Scriptures. Catholics hold that it is the responsibility of the church to declare authoritatively and infallibly what constitutes Scripture. That's talking about the Council of Hippo, where the canon of the Bible was decided by the Catholic Church, according to I don't know, would you call it Catholic history? Catholic Catholic, whatever history? Yeah, Catholic history. They have declared 73 books as scripture, so that would be our 66 books, plus seven other books which we refer to as the Apocrypha. Um, in Catholicism, those seven books, instead of being called the Apocrypha, would be referred to as the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, don't ask me how to spell it. Um, d D-something? Um, (laughs) Just a quote here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is paragraph 85. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Did you guys catch that there? It said, Scripture interpretation, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition.
0: That, that leaves the door wide open. It could be anything. To whatever the Catholic Church deems as tradition.
2: Right. And a lot of the time, when we talk about tradition and the interpretation of the scriptures, um, we have to talk about the church fathers right. also. Um, a lot of times, um, when I've had conversations about the canon of scripture, with people who hold very strongly to Roman Catholic doctrine, um, it, we invariably come to the discussion of how a lot of the church fathers disagreed with each other. Some of them who are called church fathers today um, have at one point in time been referred to as heretics. There's there's just a lot of mess that goes wrong, along with that. It's very complica- very complicated, very convoluted. Um, just some just some examples uh, that I can think of. Uh, differences in the interpretation of scripture um, that would not be based on what we would consider to be like a solid method of hermeneutics would be when we're talking about um, in Genesis 3. um, A parallel in Catholicism is drawn between uh, the prophecy of the, the, I don't know what you call it, the proto gospel, proto evangelium, So Genesis 3, 315, um, talking about how the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Now, I take that to mean that, well, I mean, it's interpreted for us by Paul in the Bible, that the offspring refers to Jesus, Um, and the woman refers to Eve. That's, That's the plain reading of that scripture, but a Roman Catholic... Who holds to the doctrines of the church might say that when it says the offspring of the woman, the offspring does indeed refer to Jesus, but woman, rather than referring to Eve, who's standing right there, in during the conversation, is actually referring to Mary. And so that verse and that interpretation of that verse is used to give legitimacy to um, to Mary as um, as being, you know, not only. mother of god but also uh, the matriarch of all christians everywhere and there's a lot of other things that go along with that interpretation
1: yeah i just i find it fascinating that they rely our our roman catholics rely so much on tradition um there's so many folks who are from the early church who actually would affirm that there was a scripture or scripture is the ultimate source of authority, that's not to say that you shouldn't look back on history to help you understand how things are interpreted, but when it comes to what the final authority is, it is the scripture over tradition. Uh, One example is Irenaeus. In his book, Against the Heresies, he speaks about how these Gnostics, they're relying on this secret tradition that they only know about, but how the secret tradition can never be held over what the scripture says. And if what they say contradicts scripture, then it doesn't matter what the historical tradition is. So that's one person. Ambrose, who was the man who uh, taught Augustine, he has a very similar thing. He said uh, we can only adopt things that we find in the holy scriptures, and that's in his uh, work on the duties of the clergy. He says that anything that's outside of the scripture should not be held on for the purposes of forming our doctrine. That's absolutely correct. I, I agree with that. The
2: key, so we'll go back, right? We took, a, we took an aside there. Um, but the core difference between how Christians and Catholics view the Bible comes down to who or how do we come to see things as Scripture. Roman Catholicism would say that the Scriptures were written and then the church has the authority to decide what becomes Scripture um, on the other hand, um, what I would affirm on myself is that the church observes these different writings—you know, writings from the the Old Testament, writings from the apostles—and we are not deciding based on the writings themselves what is scripture. Like what we like about them to make them scripture, we're discovering what is scripture when we talk about. How something is inspired to be scripture, right God is the one inspiring it second Timothy 3 sixteen and seventeen all scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work and we're we're saying that God is the one giving the words to men who wrote down what is in the Bible so when we're talking about how to decide what is the canon like god decided the canon we're just recognizing it god breathed out certain scriptures and just because we recognize them as such doesn't change the fact that they're breathed out by god it doesn't determine that uh, it's kind of we're kind of flipping you know the order of how it works right and once on our sense god is giving us the scriptures in roman catholicism's point of view we're 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 deciding what God has given to us in a way,
0: yeah, when it comes to like I love what you said about discovering if it is if this work this book this letter is authoritative if it is scripture or not um I'm just uh, gathering from a gospel coalition article I mean how do we know that you know the sixty-six books we have. How do we know that those are the right books? Is there any way for us to know um, that a book is given by God? Well, there, there are really there are three main ones: the divine qualities of the book, the corporate reception of the book it, when it was written, and then also throughout church history, and then the authoritative authors. So, are there divine qualities within the book? Do 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 certain parts? Uh, in that book that talk about theology and doctrine? Do those line up with other parts of Scripture? Do these qualities, um, do these divine qualities in that book do those or that work, or, do Christians recognize those as the voice of the Lord in the Scriptures? And then the corporate reception, like when a book is, was written, when it was written in its time or its day, was it generally accepted, accepted as authoritative and from God and as holy Scripture? That's also a helpful indicator. Is the author speaking authoritatively? Or has this work been fabricated? Or even if it is, you know, from, you know, the book of Jude or not, you know, the book of Jude, the book of Judas rather, Uh, like, you know, is that a historically um, verifiable book or, you know, the book of Enoch, for another example? Like, are these I'm not trying to get into the depths of like the historicity of these works, but, um, you know, those they would not be generally acceptive accepted as authoritative works and authoritative authors
1: michael kruger who is a professor of uh, new testament studies at Reformed theological seminary he uh, wrote a book called the canon revisited that really goes into some of this in depth And when it comes to that last point about uh, does the person have authority he mentions that the way that they looked at that in the early church was you needed to have a direct connection or be like a first-hand experience of that direct knowledge so we would have the apostles and then some of their followers like Luke and Mark would be the only people who would have the authority to write the scriptures. And that's what we see throughout the way that the canon has been taught and how we understand the canon.
2: It's one of the other differences um, that kind of goes along with the idea of the church deciding what is canon uh, versus the church discovering what God has inspired. Uh, Catholics deny what's called perpiscuity. And for anybody who doesn't know, perspicuity it just refers to the clearness of Scripture, or the clarity, uh, and the that gives it um, gives people the ability to understand the key things that it is trying to teach. So Catholics deny perspicuity; insist that the Scriptures cannot be rightly understood apart from the magisterium, that is, the teaching official teaching office of the Catholic Church. That the Catholic Church has the official and infallible interpretation. Christi- Christians reject this notion outright. We believe that every individual needs to interpret the scriptures. It's not that we're all going to give our own interpretation and ignore everything else that's ever been taught or interpreted about the Bible. We're not going to all become our own popes or anything like that. Um, I know that was one one of the fears that the opponents of the Reformation pointed out is that we're all going to become our own popes because we're all going to make up our own interpretation. It's definitely not the case. No, um, billions of Christians worldwide. There's not billions of different ways to interpret the Bible. Maybe, maybe we all just maybe it's just a fact that we don't know something that the Scripture teaches that causes there to be differences. Catholics do not regard the Scriptures as the sole infallible authority on faith and practice. We talked about this a little bit already. As Christians do. That would refer to, uh, from the Reformation, we had uh, the five solas, sola scriptura, that the scriptures are the ultimate authority in faith and practice for the believers. Can you name the other four? Pop quiz. Solas Christus, sola Gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. Look at you.
1: You even did the proper declinching in Latin. Good for you.
2: You know why? Because I have a coworker who has that on his t-shirt. Nice. (laughs) It's pretty cool.
1: For missional wear, probably.
2: Yeah, maybe. Um, Catholic authority is like a 3 legged stool. The scriptures, tradition, and the magisterium of the church. The scriptures, at least in practice, are the short leg of this wobbly stool. I like that. I like that. Kyle wants all the smoke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's fast. Since Catholics deny the purpose of the scriptures and rely more heavily on the other two legs as their infallible authority. That's why the that's why the stool is wobbly. Um, if you guys have something else, to, otherwise, I'll just end um, yeah. with what I have to say here. I'll just quote Acts 1711. Now, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, that's written about the Berean church. They were testing everything that they were being taught against the scriptures. And that's what all of us should be doing today.
1: Remember what Paul says in Galatians. If somebody teaches you a gospel other than what I brought to you, let him be accursed.
2: JD's head is about to...
1: Galatians 6. If an angel comes to
2: you
0: and shares with you a gospel contrary to one I've preached to you, it is not a gospel. It is something They are different. to be
2: accursed. Amen. That's, is that the only time where there's actually an anathema in Scripture?
1: There are a few probably in the Old Testament, but that would yeah. be the only one outside revelation in the New Testament.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: All right, let's talk about the Holy Eucharist, the Catholic Mass, and
0: transubstantiation. Well, Catholics believe that the center of the Catholic worship is the Mass or the Eucharist. Catholics believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper are You can see that in Luke 22, 14 through 23, become the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus when a priest blesses the elements during a Mass. The Catholics also hold that the bread and the wine maintain their outward characteristics of the bread and wine. They turn into the body and the blood of Christ. And in partaking of the Mass, Catholics believe that they are partaking of and enjoying Christ's sacrifice in the present. Thus, Christ's sacrifice is an ongoing atemporal act brought into the present every time a Catholic partakes of the elements at Mass. And further, since the bread and the wine are the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ, Catholics believe that it is right to adore or to worship these elements themselves. Catholic Catechism thirteen. 76 says this, and I quote, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, quote, because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread. It has always been the conviction of the Church of God and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Christianity. Well, we object to this, just to put it bluntly, gross <laughs> misunderstanding of Jesus' instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of Jesus and his sacrifice and that Christ's sacrifice was, quote, once for all, Hebrews 10, 14, and was completed in history at Calvary. Christians further object that this practice is just dangerously close, if not outright idolatry. It's outright. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, verse 14, for by a single offering, single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified.
1: I think the Roman Catholic view on uh, uh, the Lord's Supper is just so fascinating because if you actually take a poll of Roman Catholics here in the U.S., something like 85%, I think, was the last number don't actually believe in transubstantiation. They, in fact, believe something that would be closer to Zwingli's memorialism, which just says this is like pure symbolic uh, things going on in the Lord's Supper. And we know that that's not the exclusive view of Protestantism, but it's just funny that the vast majority of Catholics have like almost the exact opposite view, at least in the United States. And Moreover, I think these Catholics are unaware that the Council of Trent declared an anathema on anybody who rejects transubstantiation. But the fact is transubstantiation is not a formulated doctrine in the Catholic Church until Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century.
2: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, So in my conversations with Roman Catholics about this issue specifically, the passage that you'll always go to is the Bread of Life discourse found in John chapter 6. Yeah, it's... If you... what what was that thing I said uh, like a month or two ago that we shouldn't interpret the Bible literally, we should interpret it literarily? Yes. Um When Jesus says things like, I am the true vine, I am the door, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, we're not saying that Jesus is a plant or he's actually a door or actually a gate or a, literally his occupation is that he is a shepherd. He's comparing himself to these things in specific ways and only with specific characteristics, not in every single way. When Jesus says a few times in that bread of life discourse, I am the bread of life, or you must consume my flesh and drink my blood, he says that a few times as well. We shouldn't take that as literal, as in, my flesh is literally becoming bread for you, or this bread is literally becoming my flesh. We need to interpret that in light of the context and... Consider not only the scriptural context, but the historical context as well. And I think when we do that, we, we can recognize that Jesus was not um, teaching transubstantiation in the bread of life discourse.
0: And it's interesting, so switching topics just slightly, if that's okay with you guys, anything further yeah. to say about Catholic Mass, transubstantiation? No, because we'll be here all night if I can. Oh, going. yes. So it's ironic that we're doing this series, Protestantism versus Catholicism, part one, two, and three, because just Monday, so just last week, I don't. did you guys see this news from the Vatican? Neither of you saw this? I don't
1: follow the Vatican. Did they canonize Martin Luther yet? No. <laughs> oh. <That'd> be, <laughs> there were some talks about that, actually. That would be amazing. <laughs> I would.
2: fortress is our God. <laughs> So
0: work this can. is NBC News, Monday. Pope Francis signals openness to blessings for same-sex couples. Pope Francis opened the door Monday for some Catholic priests to bless same-sex unions, hinting at a reversal of the official Vatican position that has put it at odds with many of its own progressive followers. However, Francis outlined some major caveats, including that they should be Uh, decided uh, on a case-by-case basis and not seen as equivalent to heterosexual wedding ceremonies. The remarks came in a letter written by Francis and published Monday by the Vatican's Dicastery for the doctrine of faith. He was responding to a list of dubia, literally doubts, or questions presented by five conservative cardinals from Asia, Europe, Africa, and the United States and Latin America. What do you guys think about that?
2: I, I just have to wonder... Is the pope, current pope infallible or is the church infallible in the way that it teaches about homosexuality?
0: So what's interesting is uh, I feel like the pope is giving into a lot of the pressure from the very, very liberal German uh, Catholic priests. That, in the same article on September 20th, so just a couple weeks ago, several German Catholic priests held a ceremony blessing same-sex and remarried couples outside uh, a cathedral in a pro- at a protest against the city's conservative archbishop. Um, yeah, just fascinating. Fascinating for a very, very long time. Um, Catholics and Protestants have been hand in hand in the conversation of co-belligerent. L- yeah, LGBTQIA plus uh, pro-life. Uh, those are probably the two main moral. Uh, social issues that we've been on the same side, uh, and it, that Catholics are well known for their for their work on on those on those topics and those in those areas of social things. And now it seems like Catholics are probably heading down a road where they will be uh, abandoning their post in regards to biblical uh, truth when it comes to uh, marriage and um and and sin. I'll just it's sin, yeah. I'm surprised you guys didn't see
2: that. That was big news this last week. Well, I I thought that that was already something that was going on. I remember years ago hearing something about, reading something about that very topic. Um, But this must just be more of an official thing, whereas prior it was just um, him giving his opinion on it. Right. Apart from, you know, him him giving an infallible declaration because... There is a difference between those two things in Roman Catholicism. Not everything a pope says is binding um, is binding doctrine. For
0: Catholics. So here's what the pope said. Homosexuals have a right to be part of the family, the pontiff said in uh, Francesco, a documentary about his life. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable because of it. I just find that interesting. What I find fascinating is that um, I'm, I'm not so sure how North American Catholics will, you know, or, or have responded to just the news this past week about the Pope saying that. But I, I can almost be certain that Catholics in Africa, Asia, um, South Central America, uh, are heavily, heavily against um, the church allowing blessings for same-sex unions because that just opens the door later years from now, the, you know gay weddings happening in Catholic churches. Um,
2: it's kind of what we've seen in the rest of the culture, right? As soon as right. we start to, as soon as the culture started to give in on a lot of these sexual issues, that's
1: when everything started to follow. Right.
0: All right, Hunter. Was
2: Peter the first pope?
1: JD, no. Peter was not the first pope. Um, Great. Next section. (laughs) No. So Roman Catholicism makes this claim, and they they appeal to Matthew 16, where Jesus uh, makes this declaration about uh, how—sorry, I'm blanking on exactly the words of it, but it's that upon this rock I will build my church. Right. After Peter makes the confession that you're Christ, the son of the living God— And there are so many interpretations to this passage, but I think the one that's most likely when you're looking at it is it's upon the confession that Peter makes that is the foundation of the church. It is not Peter himself. You can get that by looking at the different words that are used in the Greek because petros is a different word than the word that's used for the rock that is the foundation of the church. And Moreover, this idea of the, the papacy being traced back to Peter, this is a later this is a later thing that we see kind of in the medieval times. Uh, there are multiple questions that it raises, like what do you do with the Cadaver Synod of uh, 897, where they exhume a pope, put him on trial, find him guilty of not being a legitimate pope, and then they uh, found his papacy null and void, What do you do with this uh, time period where he was pope for, I don't know, uh, let's see, five years. You have five years this person was pope, and they're just saying, oh, yeah, for the five years there was nobody in the office. So there was no legitimate pope for that time. That kind of really cuts against this idea of papal legitimacy and uh, a continuous succession from Peter.
0: Yeah, how how I've always uh, understood it, interpreted it, and even in my study— is what I think it's the common Protestant interpretation of this passage where uh, Jesus calls Peter Petros, meaning a small stone, and he calls himself, or Peter's confession, like you said, Hunter, Petra, the rock. Thus, Jesus' affirmation isn't about a special role for for Peter, but about Jesus himself as the cornerstone of the church. Kyle, I think this is only fitting that you take this last section. Are Catholics... Christians.
2: Catholics have a wrong understanding of the gospel. Just going to say that flat out. Mixing works with faith, such as the sacraments, while even misunderstanding the nature of faith itself, and emphasize for salvation many things that the scriptures speak nothing about, such as purgatory. Just going to say it. It is hard to imagine that a thoughtful Catholic who sincerely subscribes to the teaching of the Catholic Church can also be trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Of course, there are likely many who would describe themselves as Catholic who do, in fact, trust in the gospel, but these would be the exceptions, not the rule. That's an important distinction to make. Um, There's going to be people who have any number of labels for themselves who won't necessarily agree with all of the things that come with having that label. Someone can call themselves Catholic as we discussed, right? You know um, most people who are Catholic, attend mass, call themselves Catholic, do not subscribe to transubstantiation. Um, I think a good argument could be made that that's even the most important doctrine that the church holds. I mean, it's, it's one that is the most rigorously defended in discussions I've had.
0: Kyle, I think we can conclude that Roman Catholics,
2: a thoughtful, any thoughtful
0: Roman Catholic, when faced with this material, if they are not belligerent and defensive and with truly open eyes and with the heart of, Lord, is there something here that I can learn? When faced with, man, here are the quotations straight from Catholic catechism and theology, Catholic theology, and then here is what God's word says. I don't know how someone can look at those two things and say, yep, those line up hand in hand. Clearly, there are differences and at odds with each other. And one is right. Either it's it's man's theology or it's the word of God. Uh, I'm going to trust the word of God. Yes. How can we ha- be a help to our Roman Catholic friends? Because, I mean, there's been a handful of times throughout these three podcast episodes that, you know, we've gotten a little maybe, maybe a little snarky, a little laugh, maybe even sarcastic. You know, if you know the three of us, Hunter, Kyle, and myself, we are... We love humor. We love sarcasm, all of those things. But in all seriousness, what are what are some practical tips that we can truly, lovingly, thoughtfully share the gospel with a Roman Catholic?
1: I think we need to start with humility when we're approaching this. Um, I think these are hard topics to approach and people have sensitivities about it. It could be something that they've grown up with, something that's been a part of their life, their whole life. Maybe they have not really questioned it a whole lot. They've heard the things, so they know the right things to say, but maybe haven't thought about it in a level that goes beyond that. So there needs to be a level of humility when we're approaching those folks, thinking about that, but also knowing that we don't know all the answers to this either. They might be able to counteract some of our arguments and come with, Something that we need to spend time and researching and say, "Hey, I'll get back to you on that," because I don't know yet.
0: Hunter, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Kyle, I'm going to give you the last word on this conversation before you wrap up. I know this is a this is a topic that is probably closer to home with you than maybe Hunter or I, because you live in a lot of this space. We're having conversations with with Catholics more probably on a weekly basis. So, closing thoughts, and then we'll wrap up.
2: Yeah. So, I just want to say, like you guys, you guys covered a lot of really good stuff. And I just want to say like, there's a lot of things that I've done wrong in trying to share the gospel with, with, um, Roman Catholics and, um, you know, some things that you definitely don't want to do when sharing the gospel is just try to beat down their beliefs. Right. We kind of touched on that a little bit, but you know, I, you know, you won't know it if you just know me in church, but I have a tendency to want to be the person who, Pushes against beliefs, not because, not necessarily because I want to beat somebody down, but just because, like, I want to exhaustively check things against each other and find out exactly where these two things clash. And that's just a way that I learn. But sometimes I take that way too far, and I'll, I'll catch myself, um, you know, being sarcastic, being snarky, and uh, sometimes just being downright mean about it. Um, What we need to do is we just need to share the gospel, as the Bible says. We need to share it with uh, fear and trembling, right? That's how we need to be. Um, Humility is so important, right? Um, You know, we can follow the lead of Thomas Aquinas when we're doing this, right? I've heard one philosopher describe him as, somebody who would steel man his opponent's arguments, right? We all hear about about straw manning people's arguments, but he would steel man their arguments. In his Summa Theologica, he listed um, doctrines that he held and then would list out the strongest form of an opponent's argument against what he believed as he could. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking to Roman Catholics who know their theology, the doctrines, we need to make sure that we're not misrepresenting anything that's said. Not only is it going to, destroy our credibility but it's also going to we're also going to be making Christ look like a fool for for who we for who we are representing him to be. We're claiming that we know Christ truly and that they might not necessarily. But then when we when we act in a way that is truly not Christ-like, then we just we just destroy all of that.
0: Amen. Well, I think this conversation has been really, really good. I really enjoyed these last three episodes, and listener, I hope you have as well. Our closing doxology and parting words to you. This um, episode of dudes and doxology, uh, dudes and doxology, comes from Revelation 19: verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong." to to our God, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, calling out, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory.